This is Space Time Series 24, Episode 44, coming up on Space Time. A new study shows that Mars didn't lose all its water at once. The European Space Agency's 8th European Conference on Space Debris gets underway in Darmstadt, Germany, and SpaceX launches its 24th Starlink mission. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study shows that the red planet Mars didn't lose all its water at once, but rather over a series of alternating wetter and drier periods ending about 3 billion years ago. The findings, reported in the journal Geology, are based on observations taken by NASA's Mars Curiosity rover, which is exploring the base of Mount Sharp inside Gal Crater. One of the primary goals of the Curiosity mission is to study how Mars changed from a warm, wet, habitable world capable of supporting life into the barren, freeze-dry desert it is today. One of the study's authors, Roger Weens from the Los Alamos National Laboratory, says the analysis shows that the Martian climate alternated between wetter and drier periods before it finally went completely dry. Spacecraft in orbit around Mars had previously provided clues about the mineral composition of the slopes of Mount Sharp. That's one of the reasons Curiosity was sent there. Once on the ground, the six-wheeled rover has been able to use its high-resolution camera and rock-vaporizing laser to analyze the chemical composition of those rocks, making detailed observations about the sedimentary beds and revealing the conditions under which they formed. The Carsize rover's laser instrument uses an infrared-coloured laser beam which heats rock fragments to around 10,000 degrees Celsius, hot enough to vaporise them. The plasma produced by this process allows scientists to take a spectral analysis of the chemical and mineral composition of the rocks, and that conveys information about the geological history of Mars. Moving up through the terrain, curiosities observed that the types of bedrock change drastically. Lying above the lake-deposited clays that form the base of Mount Sharp, sandstone layers show structures indicating their formation from wind-formed dunes, and that suggests long and dry climatic periods. Higher up, thin alternating brittle and resistant beds are more typical of river floodplain deposits, signalling a return to wetter conditions. These changes in terrain, as shown in the rock strata, indicate that the climate of Mars underwent several large-scale fluctuations between wetter and drier periods, until the generally arid conditions observed today finally took hold. During this extended mission, Curiosity will climb the foothills of Mount Sharp and drill into its various beds for a closer look at these minerals. The layer cake nature of Mount Sharp is providing curiosity with a geological history of the Martian landscape, uncovering secrets simply not possible to read from space. This is Space Time. Still to come, the 8th European Conference on Space Debris now underway in Darmstadt, Germany, and SpaceX launches its 24th Starlink mission. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. Not 
all that long ago, we were able to tell you that the United States Strategic Space Command, as it was then called, was tracking over 18,000 artificial objects in orbit above the Earth. Of those, around 1,500 were operational satellites, and the rest were either disused spacecraft, spent rocket stages, or larger segments of space junk big enough to be tracked from the ground. Problem is, we can't say that anymore. Things up there have gotten a lot more crowded. As of January the 1st this year, the Union of Concerned Scientists reports there were some 3,372 operational satellites orbiting the Earth. Now, with the ongoing launches of hundreds of Starlink and OneWeb broadband internet satellites and the ever-growing numbers of Chinese spy satellites being thrown into space, the skies are getting ever more crowded and the risk of a collision is becoming ever more likely. Current estimates suggest there are more than 200 million bits of space junk, a few centimetres or less in size, orbiting the Earth. And remember, these objects are travelling at orbital speeds of around 28,000 kilometres per hour. That's faster than a speeding bullet, and it means when they crash into each other, they're hitting at over 56,000 kilometres an hour. One of the big fears scientists have are for cascade events. That's where satellites, spent rocket stages or bits of space junk slam into each other, creating more space junk, which then slams into other spacecraft or space junk, creating even more space debris, and so on. Ultimately, the fear is that the Earth could face a Kessler syndrome. First proposed by NASA scientist Donald Kessler back in 1978, the Kessler syndrome involves a runaway chain reaction of collisions, exponentially increasing the amount of debris clouds orbiting the Earth, eventually reaching a point where the distribution of space junk and debris could render space activities and the use of satellites in specific orbital regions completely impractical for generations. And the idea of that isn't very far-fetched. Right now, the International Space Station is regularly forced to change orbit in order to avoid space junk, crews needing to seek refuge in dock capsules just in case there's a collision and a need to undertake an emergency escape back to Earth. And collisions do happen. Spacewalking astronauts have recorded impact damage on the orbiting outpost, luckily nothing big enough to penetrate the inner hull yet. And returning spacecraft have also shown evidence of debris impact damage caused while in orbit and it's actually been going on for a fair while. The first major recorded space collision occurred back on February the 10th, 2009, when the 560-kilogram Iridium-33 telecommunications satellite collided with the disused 950-kilogram Russian Cosmos-2251 satellite. The collision occurred 800 kilometres above northern Siberia at a relative speed of 11.7 kilometres per second. That's around 42,120 kilometres an hour both spacecraft being blasted to bits in the collision. But to date, the worst incident, polluting space with deadly shrapnel, wasn't an accident, but deliberate. On January the 11th, 2007, China conducted an anti-satellite missile test using a DF-21 ballistic missile launched from the Xichang Satellite Launch Center to deliberately blow up a disused Chinese weather satellite for no other reason than to demonstrate to the rest of the world that they could do it. The missile slammed head-on into the 750-kilogram Fengyong FY1C weather satellite at an altitude of 865 kilometres, travelling at some 8 kilometres per second, and smashing both spacecraft into a massive debris cloud containing hundreds of thousands of bits of shrapnel. The event was the largest recorded creation of space debris in history. 
Beijing was condemned by other nations, including the United States, Britain, Japan, Russia and Australia, for their actions, which dramatically worsened the problem of space junk and increased the danger posed by space debris to both people and spacecraft. And those fears were proven to be justified on January 22, 2013, when a Russian laser ranging satellite was struck by a piece of debris from the Chinese missile test, damaging the spacecraft, changing its orbit and altering its spin rate. To address this ever-growing problem, the European Space Agency is currently hosting the 8th European Conference on Space Debris in Darmstadt, Germany. Scientists, engineers, industry experts and policymakers are spending the four-day virtual conference discussing the latest issues surrounding the growing problems of space junk. They're looking at the latest research and trying to come up with the best workable solutions to deal with the hundreds of millions of bits of space junk now orbiting the Earth. This report from ESA TV. A European ATV supply ship burns up in the atmosphere over a remote part of the Pacific Ocean. This re-entry was carefully planned and controlled. It's the unpredictable damage that space debris could do to orbiting spacecraft that's now a major cause for concern. Space debris can be anything from the spent upper stage of a rocket and a disused satellite to an astronaut glove or fleck of paint. There are over 129 million objects estimated to be in orbit that are larger than a millimetre. And even a coin-sized piece of debris travelling at up to 56,000 kilometres per hour will rip through a satellite faster than a bullet with destructive force. At the moment, the most known encounters are between active satellites and space debris. An example of such an event uh, happened in 2009, where we had uh, a collision between an active telecommunications satellite, Iridium, with an inactive space debris um, satellite, Cosmos. So this collision actually resulted in thousands of fragments, and uh, many of them are still in orbit. Orbiting fragments can potentially hit other objects, producing more fragments and more collisions, a dangerous chain reaction known as the Kessler effect. Suggested technologies for removing space debris have so far included everything from harpoons and nets to robotic arms. Nothing is off the table. ESA has also commissioned Clear Space One for 2025. It'll be the first mission to actively remove a piece of space junk in the form of a Vega launch adapter. Nobody has ever removed a space debris and it's a very challenging mission. So first thing is proving that it can be done. And that's what we are planning to do with the Clear Space One mission in ESA. Then the scientists are unanimous. What you need to do is to remove the big object from the most populated orbit. Why? Because those are the objects which have a higher risk of collision and which will create a cloud of smaller debris. More than 6,000 satellites currently orbit Earth. Around half of these are no longer working, while many of the active satellites are essential for our modern world, be it telecommunications, weather updates, the internet and GPS. If damaged or destroyed, the impact on society would be huge. We know that space debris is a global problem and that calls for global collaboration. And um, this collaboration is done, of course, in, in scientific areas, but also among agencies. And one example is the Interagency Debris Coordination Committee, IADC, where the major space agencies 
work together on defining the appropriate space debris mitigation uh, technologies, forecasting the evolution of the environment, and also exchanging data and information. ESA, a founding member and one of 13 space agencies on the committee, is also hosting the virtual European Conference on Space Debris from its site in Darmstadt, Germany. Scientists, engineers and industry will discuss the best ways to approach the problem and how to make space more sustainable. Agencies are currently tracking 28,000 space debris objects and ESA is also developing laser tracking technology and AI-supported automated collision avoidance systems to reduce the number of false alerts for potential collisions. The aim, however, is to act now and tackle space debris before it's too late. And in that report from ESA TV, we heard from Xanthi Okonomidou from the European Space Agency's Space Debris Office and Louisa Innocenti and Tim Flora from the European Space Agency's Clean Space Office. This is Space Time. Still to come, SpaceX launches its 24th Starlink mission, carrying another 60 broadband satellites into orbit. And later in the science report, a new study confirms that kids really are far less likely to spread COVID-19. All that and more still to come on Space Time. SpaceX has launched its 24th Starlink mission carrying another 60 broadband internet satellites into orbit. The flight aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Space Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida brings the total number of Starlink satellites now placed in orbit to 1,445. The 270-kilogram satellites were successfully placed into a 550-kilometre-high orbit, with the SkyTrain visible for around 20 minutes as it orbited over eastern Australia, with sightings ranging from Melbourne to Newcastle. The constant trains of SpaceX Starlink satellites are becoming a growing problem for astronomers. They're ruining celestial images and affecting a growing amount of important scientific research. Still, SpaceX has permission to launch at least another 30,000 Starlink satellites with an option for thousands more. The mission's first stage, which had been used on six previous flights, returned to Earth safely, landing on the drone ship Of Course I Still Love You, which had been positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. The flight was the 10th mission this year for SpaceX. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has confirmed earlier research showing that children may not be as infectious in spreading the SARS-CoV-2 virus to others as previously thought. The findings reported in the Canadian Medical Association journal analysed samples from 175 kids and 130 adults in Manitoba who were infected with SARS-CoV-2 to see if there's any difference in their infectiousness. The researchers investigated viral loads in both groups to determine which were the more infectious, finding that kids didn't appear to be the main drivers of SARS-CoV-2 transmission. 
Of the 305 samples cultured, 97 were from children aged 10 years or younger, 78 were from kids aged 11 to 17, and the remaining 130 were from adults 18 or older. The authors were able to successfully grow SARS-CoV-2 virus in 93 out of the 305 samples. That's 31%. These included 57 samples or 44% from the adults. But by contrast, the virus could only be cultured in 18 samples, that's 19% of kids aged 10 years or younger, and only 18 samples or 23% of children aged 11 to 17. Put simply, it means the likelihood of growing live virus from children's samples was 55% lower than from adult samples. Some 3 million people have now died from the COVID-19 virus worldwide, with another 140 million infected with a deadly disease since it first emerged in China and spread around the world. A new study has for the first time obtained data from below West Antarctica's Thwaites Doomsday Glacier, and the news isn't good. Using a remotely operated submersible vehicle, ROV, scientists from the British Antarctic Survey and the Universities of Gothenburg, South Florida and East Anglia found the supply of warm water to the glacier is far larger than previously thought. And that's triggering concerns of faster melting and an accelerating ice flow. The submersible measured the strength, temperature, salinity and oxygen content of the ocean currents under the ice shelf. The findings, published in the journal Science Advances, shows that warm water is approaching from all sides under pinning points, critical locations where the ice is connected to the seabed, giving stability to the ice shelf. Melting around these pinpoints will eventually lead to instability and retreat of the ice shelf and subsequently the upstream glacier flowing off the land. Global sea level is affected by how much ice is on the land. And the biggest uncertainty in the forecasts is the future evolution of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which accounts for around 10% of the current rate of sea level rise. Boeing's just been awarded new contracts for 11 more P-8A Poseidon Maritime Surveillance aircraft for the US Navy and two more for Australia. That brings the US Navy's total Poseidon contract to 128 and 14 for the ADF. Britain, New Zealand, Norway and South Korea have also purchased P-8A Poseidons, while India is purchasing a variant known as the P-8I, and Germany is also looking at purchasing the aircraft. Canberra has also confirmed its deal to purchase three upgraded versions of the Global Hawk reconnaissance drone known as the MQ-4C Triton. A new study claims drinking beetroot juice is good for improving vascular and cognitive health. The findings, reported in the journal Redox Biology, show that beets are rich in inorganic nitrates, which promote communities of oral bacteria associated with healthier blood vessels and brain function. Many oral bacteria help process inorganic nitrates found in vegetable-rich diets into nitrites, which act as a precursor for nitric oxide, which is a regulator of vascular tone and neurotransmission. The research by the University of Exeter suggests that adding nitrate-rich food to the diet, such as beet juice, for as little as 10 days can substantially alter the oral microbiome. Previous studies compared the oral bacteria of younger and older people and healthy people compared with those with diseases. But this is the first to test nitrate-rich diets in this way. A new study claims that Australians are now spending up to a third of their waking hours with their eyes glued to their smartphones. 
With the details, we're joined by Alex Sahara of Reut from ity.com. Yeah, look, a report from reviews.org has analysed a 1,000 Australians and they've come up with some pretty amazing stats that extrapolate about 17 years of your life spent looking at your phone. And, of course, that doesn't include watching TV or looking at the computer screen. So we spend a huge chunk of time on our phones. And the average for Australians is 5.5 hours per day. Now, over a lifetime, that's 145 1,800 hours or over 33% of your waking hours because we spend theory about eight hours a day asleep. And, uh, you know, Gen Z is spending 7.3 hours per day looking at their phone, you know, a millennial 6.7 hours, Gen X, which is from 65 to 1980, about six hours. Boomers from 46 to 1964 spend about 2.9 hours. And even the silent generation that was born between 1928 and 1945, even they spend 2.8 hours a day looking at their phones. So um, the phone has become an integral part of our lives. And of course, it also goes to show that if we have an outage, we had a big outage in Australia with yeah, one of Vodafone. our networks. Yeah, they went down for hours and people couldn't make calls. They couldn't get data. They were flipped over to 3G. If you could get a connection, it was very slow. And so much of our lives is tied up in the digital realm. And that's why we also worry about nation state cyber attacks or EMPs or those sorts of things, because life as we know it could be wiped out. Well, indeed, it will be when that happens. I mean, the, uh, the first we're going to know about the next world war is when our phones stop working. That's right. And look, you know, some of these things can happen from space activity. I mean, in theory, there could be some knocking out of satellites by solar flares or that sort of thing. So the first instinct that maybe it's... Yeah, another current event, indeed. Our lives are very much intertwined. And part of the thing about EMPs, for example, is that, and, and also just in terms of um, connectivity going through an outage, is that we should be building technology to withstand EMPs, but that would make things a lot more expensive. And secondly, a lot well, of the people's military, phones... the military, are the military totally hardened now, surely? You would hope so. But I mean, certainly the average computer at home, your phone, the typical data centers, they're not hardened to such degrees. Some great news if you're a seller of personal computers. The PC market swore by some 55% during the first quarter of 2021. Yeah, look, over the past decade and even a bit longer, PC sales have fallen as people have purchased tablets, but more importantly, smartphones. With smartphones, the true personal computers that the actual computer industry hoped that computers would be. But of course, smartphones can sit in my pocket. But the last quarter saw PC sales bounce back. Well, that's all thanks to COVID. Surely people have needed to work from home. Well, these figures are up 55% on Q1 2020 when the COVID pandemic was just hitting. And we did see that in the first few months of quarantine, certainly in Australia, but probably elsewhere around the world, it was very hard to buy new computers and printers and laptops and monitors. And even secondhand stocks were bought out because people had to work from home, they had to get their children studying from home, and people wanted to have better experience. So there was a lot of pent-up demand over the past few months where people couldn't purchase things because there was no stock available. And that's something that's still happening to some degree today. In Australia, it's very hard to find laser printers. A friend wanted to buy a color laser. All the color lasers are gone. And it's also very hard to get a lot of ink cartridges because so many people are now working from home. But the good news for the PC industry is that sales did go up. So claims over the past decade that the PC is dead clearly is not true. And uh, you know, Lenovo, Apple, HP, Dell, and Acer are the top five, and not in that necessarily in that order, but they're the top five vendors, and they all had double-digit growth, uh, which is a great sign. We just have to hope there are no um, you know, EMPs or outages that cause <laughs> our expensive technologies to become paperweights. Tell me about the upgrade for Freeview TV. Yeah, in Australia, we have a thing called Freeview, and TVs from about 2014 onwards, some of them anyway, some of the connected TVs have this Freeview interface, which allows you to both uh, look at free-to-air TV see an electronic program guide and also catch up on 
the free-to-air TV program. So you can watch them as though it was like a Netflix where you can watch them on demand. And uh, as of the 14th of April, this system in Australia was upgraded and uh, upgraded on TVs back to 2014. Now, certain TVs will only get a version of the upgraded experience depending on the technology and the chips inside that TV. But it just makes it easier to be able to access all of the free-to-air services in one app on your screen instead of having to you know, go up and down with the remote control and flip through channels or look at a more basic electronic program guide. This is a much more advanced system. And I'm sure other countries have something similar. But in Australia, if you do use free TV, a lot of people don't. They use their Foxtel box or some other sort of box that has its own Which EPG. doesn't but give you all the channels, by the way. doesn't always have all the channels. But, but free-to-air TV, there's about 35 free-to-air TV channels in Australia. Uh, you know, there's the five major TV networks. And then they have these offshoot channels, which are often playing TV shows from the 80s or you know, stuff that has very low viewership. Also, things like shopping channels. I mean, it's the whole thing about hundreds of channels and nothing to watch. But uh, the industry, the, the, the free view industry, the free television industry has upgraded the experience. And so if you do have a free view TV and you notice something different, well, they've made a change and it's, it's not just you imagining it. Bit of disturbing news. Only 90% of iPhone users have iOS 14. Well, actually, that's not disturbing at all. It's actually amazing because if you look at the number of people using the latest version. Surely. Well, it should be. But if you look at the, the latest, uh, the, the stats for the number of people using the latest versions of Android, it's the single digits or in the very, very low double digits because it's much harder to upgrade Android devices to the newest version of Android unless it's a Google Pixel phone, in which case it goes back you know, three or four years. But most Androids, after a couple of years, that's it. They get no more updates and people are using older devices that are out of date. But on the iPhone side of things, you can still upgrade an iPhone 6S or above mm. to iOS 14, which is quite incredible. You've got and it's five so years important. Of, well, it is because every time there's a new update. Currently, we're up to iOS 14.4.2 or 4. I can't remember which iOS 14.5 is coming soon. But every time there's a new version, not only do they introduce new features, but they fix bugs. And the last series, the last couple of updates fixed bugs that Apple themselves said were being actively exploited by These bad guys. These are security issues we're talking about. They are and would allow people to run third-party malicious software on your device. It could suckle the information off your phone. It could even do things like activate the camera or the speaker. I mean, these sorts of, or the microphone, but these sorts of things normally are used by governments to target, you know, people that they don't like, journalists or um, rebels, whatever it might be. But it can also be used by cyber criminals to just try and hack as many phones as possible and suck up as much information. So when Apple and when Android and, you know, other people have updates, it's generally an excellent idea to update straight away. And with 90% of iPhone users on iOS 14, 90% of people are in theory protected, but that doesn't break down whether they're on the latest version of iOS 14. And that also leaves 10% who are on iOS 13 and iOS 12. Now, iOS 12, which is for iPhone 5S and lower, that did get an update to guard against these vulnerabilities. But iOS 13 probably didn't because Apple wants you to move to iOS 14. So it's very important if you value the security of all of your digital information on your phone, which is like your digital twin with all of your digital life on it, you really should make sure that you are applying all of these updates. And that goes the same for Windows, for your Macs, for your connected TVs, for everything in your life that can be updated. And if you're not sure how to do it, get the help of a friend, one of your children, get the Geek Squad, get those guys in to come and help you because it's, it's, it's important. That's Alex Zaharov-Royd from ity.com. That's the show for now. 
Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 